there's a lot of reasons for them to be skeptical, um, which could sound like a depressing thing, right? Like our audience doesn't trust us and, and, you know, everything's terrible, but it does mean that there's an incredible opportunity that now more than ever, people are looking for that evidence. They want to be able to trust. And so if you can put that forth, if you can be the one to actually stand out by creating evidence of your claims, then it's going to be easier for them to let their guard down and, and trust that you're someone they can work with. Helping you create loyal customers and loyal employees all through the power of simplicity. This is the Simple Brand Podcast, now heard around the world, including Santiago, Chile. I'm your host, Matt Lyles, and this week I'm talking with Melanie Diesel. Melanie's a keynote speaker, an award-winning branded content creator, and a best-selling author. Wait, wasn't Melody already on the show? That's right. Melanie was on the Simple Brand Podcast all the way back in episode 13, where we discussed her book, The Content Fuel Framework. This time, she's back to discuss her new book, Prove It, Exactly How Modern Marketers Earn Trust. Listen, I get it. You know your brand is amazing and you say your brand is amazing. But why should your customers believe you? They're waiting for you to prove it. And if you can't, then they'll simply walk away. Thankfully, there's a simple framework to follow to help you craft your promises and back up each claim you make. And Melanie and I discussed that framework to help you not only craft the right promise to your customers, but also to create and deliver the right content that proves your promise without you simply saying, hey, trust me. So here it is. Here's my interview with Melanie Diesel. Hi, Melanie. Welcome back. It's good to be back. Yeah. Well, this is exciting. So I love being able to spend time with you and talk about your previous book, The Content Fuel Framework. But you've got another one back now. Prove it. Exactly how modern marketers earn trust. That's right. I went and did it again. I don't know. Glutton for punishment. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you had help this time too, right? It's true. It's true. Yeah, I had uh, my good friend Phil Jones as a co-author on this one. Yeah. And and with it being Phil, I think there's that lo- contractual obligation that you've got to include the term exactly, exactly how. It was a nice uh, little Easter egg there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So to me, the book feels like it's a pretty timely book. But from your perspective, what drove you to write it now, today? Yeah, so it's Interesting. I mean, the idea for the book initially came sort of on the tail end of the last one, which was, you know, we were giving people ideas on how to come up with ideas. But then the question becomes, well, which ones should I focus on? Where should I start? Which ideas are the best ones to to start with? And my answer was always, well, it depends on what your business is trying to prove. Like, what are you trying to, what brand are you trying to put forth? What expectations are you trying to set with your audience? And that was a realization that like there probably needs to be a little more structure around this and that maybe people need some help figuring out what kind of content works really well as proof of the various business claims they're trying to make. And, you know, Phil's a good friend of mine. I trust him implicitly on a lot of different things. And so I was sort of having just a a brainstorm call with him saying, I'm trying to put this together. And the two of us, it was just like an instant synergy on this topic that we were, you know, we both had a lot of thoughts on it and we were able to really blossom it into a, a full framework. It's cool when you're uh, you know, sharing it with somebody else and then it really comes together. 
it's always good to work with friends, you know, when you someone that you enjoy working with and it's like a good excuse for us to hang out more. You know? Well, I'm curious, why do you think that there's such a such a lack of trust from consumers today? There's I mean, there's like a million reasons that folks are are sort of defaulting to distrust these days. And, you know, it's really timely that Edelman just came out with their annual trust barometer report that they put out. And it said that 59 percent of those surveyed said their default is to distrust something until they see evidence otherwise. So they're they're not defaulting to trust like they used to. And I mean, there's lots of things that contribute to that, I think, in in large part. The internet and all of the associated technologies that have come along with it have made it difficult for us to know like what can be trusted, right? There's like deep fake videos where it looks like someone is speaking and it's not actually them. We've got like face replacement filters, you know, there's all, I mean, it's really difficult, truthfully, if you're not very media savvy or if you haven't spent a lot of time intentionally looking into these kinds of things to know what you can trust. And there are, even if it's not us, like there are definitely marketers, sales professionals or, or scammers that are out there trying to confuse or, you know, trick or pull the wool over their eyes. You, you know, you look at like your spam inbox, your text messages, probably your voicemails and missed calls about your car warranty. There's a lot of reasons for them to be skeptical, um, which could sound like a depressing thing, right? Like our audience doesn't trust us and, and you know, everything's terrible. But it does mean that there's an incredible opportunity that now more than ever, people are looking for that evidence. They want to be able to trust. And so if you can put that forth, if you can be the one to actually stand out by creating evidence of your claims, then it's going to be easier for them to let their guard down and, and trust that you're someone they can work with. Yeah, well that, well, that makes sense. And I like that there's, you know, there's a great opportunity for that. And as there's more and more scammers out there and more and more technology that makes things untrustworthy, I think that's going to grow. And I think that level of distrust may grow even more. So on one side, you've got, you know, on, on one to the end of the spectrum, you've got these people that are, uh, I guess, scamming you. Like they're, they're really yeah. out to get you um, with untrustworthy material. Somewhere in the middle I think is where a lot of marketers have been operating, where they're not out to get you, but they haven't been they haven't been building trust the way that you talk about. So why do you think most marketers have been operating like that? I mean, I think historically that's been an okay way to operate. There, you know, that uh, Edelman study that I mentioned that just came out with fifty nine percent default with distrust. It hasn't always been that high. It's been on the rise. So. You know, we're looking back a point where 50 percent or, you know, or so of your audience would trust that you were saying like, that's not bad odds. Right. So for a long time, the onus wasn't really on us as marketers to kind of build a case around the statements we were making. We sort of looked at what are the legal regulations? Like, how do I not get a hand slap for unfair advertising or like misleading business practices and like go from there? And I think it wasn't as much of a priority because it wasn't such a major obstacle that we were facing so often. We were facing other sorts of objections and challenges, but the the distrust thing, at least the rise in it, is, is pretty new. It sounds like people have normally defaulted to like, what's the minimum requirement? What do we yeah. have to have in there, you know, to, to to be able to just get away with whatever we want to say? Yeah, I mean, and I think. I don't know. I, I don't want to sound anti-sales. I know sometimes there's like this animosity between marketing and sales. 
Um, but I think oftentimes sales is driven, you know, their incentives, the whole way the sales industry is set up is often incentivizing them to do whatever it takes to get the sale, right? That's yeah. their whole mission. They're, that's how they're measured on their success. And so, you know, the pressure is definitely on to do whatever it takes, like you mentioned. And I think marketing, sometimes we're in the same boat where it's like, you got to bring in X number of leads this quarter. So, you know, you do whatever you got to do and say what you got to say. So there is there is sort of that grappling as an individual, you know, how do I align my ethics and what I want to do above and beyond the minimum with still being able to make sure I'm delivering on whatever those incentives or goals are as sort of a broader company. I think that goes back to leadership and how leadership measures, how leadership incentivizes their people. And a lot of times there, there's too many brands, I think, focus on the short term and focus on the transaction when there's a lot more value, but there's also a lot more upfront work needed. There's a lot more value when you focus on the customer relationship, the long-term relationship. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we're seeing more. I feel like we've seen more and more brands and, and sort of professionals kind of open their eyes to that, that, you know, building a relationship for the long term is, is obviously a better long term structure. You know, you're you're creating a, a future customer, not just a right now customer. And I think that ultimately we all know the, the what is the catchphrase about it being easier to, to keep a customer than to acquire a new one. And so, you know, the more you can focus on building those relationships, the easier that whole process will be. Yeah. Yeah. And the more that you can build trust and keep that relationship going, the more that those customers that you're retaining are likely going to recommend you to others. You know what? Oh, you had a bad experience over here or, hey, this brand over here is saying that. Let me tell you about the company I deal with and how trustworthy they are. Absolutely. I think that sort of that word of mouth, it's it's really important. Uh, obviously, it can be a, a massive uh, driver of, of new referrals and new business. But I think also it's harder to earn that than it has been in the past, right? You know, you, we, to be fair, the, the bar is pretty low. Like the expectations are pretty low. So, you know, when you can go above and beyond and kind of provide that wonderful experience, you know, provide proof of your claims, really make them feel safe and comfortable in the transaction with you, you know, trust that you're going to deliver on what you do. That's, uh, that's a, a great way to hopefully encourage them to, to share that experience with others too. Yeah. Well, and so we, we've, we've talked about making claims a couple of times so far. And I like how you, you tie a lot of the book to the legal background. I mean, like, you know, you know what, here in, in the court of law, you've got to be able to back up things with evidence. And you write how claims with evidence simply fall flat. So it, it's, it's about providing the right evidence to back up our claims. But then how do we go about knowing the right evidence that we need to provide? That's a good question. And I think uh, in many ways, like all things in, in marketing, uh, it depends, right? But on some level, there are some some kind of commonalities you can fall back on. So in the book, I talk about three different types of content in particular that work really well as evidence of, of your business claims, whatever promises or expectations or guarantees you're making for your audience. Those three types are corroboration, demonstration, and education. So when we're creating content that corroborates, you're saying like, you don't have to take my word for it. Here's other people's words, right? So that could be talking to experts in your space or sharing testimonials, customer stories, success stories, case studies. All of that is your way of saying, look, I told you we're great, but you don't have to believe me. Here are other people saying we're great. We're saying we get those results. We're saying how game-changing this will be. That corroboration content is something we're probably dabbling in, 
Um, but dialing that up can go a long way toward helping to build trust with the audience for sure. The demonstration content, on the other hand, is sort of like instead of saying you don't have to take my word for it or theirs, you can see it yourself. The easiest uh, example I like to give for this is like the infomercial model. So, you know, every time you see an infomercial for a product, they don't just say this thing is amazing. It will it will change your life. Like they show you they they show a side by side of that product and a competitor product. They show, you know, the difference in how they clean stains or how strong they are, whatever the case may be. They show you. So you don't have to wonder if they're telling the truth. You watch it unfold with your own eyes. So that demonstration content can go a long way again toward helping them feel like, okay, they've shown me. I can see with my own eyes that this is something I can trust. And then that last category of educational content is really about um, understanding that our audience doesn't always understand our claims to begin with. So this is especially true if you are working with a lot of first-time buyers. So if the folks who are coming to you are doing something for the first or perhaps only time in their life, they may not even know what kind of claims or guarantees are important. They might not even know that that claim has an impact on their experience. Um, Examples being like, you know, I don't know if you're planning a wedding or buying a home for the first time, those kinds of things, you, you, you know, hopefully only do, uh, you, you have a first experience where you're not really sure what you're doing. Um, but that's also true if your end user is not your buyer. So if you have a CEO who's signing on to your SaaS software, but they're not going to be the ones using it, it's going to be the sales team, the marketing team, the engineering team. Well, that CEO may not have the niche experience to understand what features are going to be important and what sort of guarantees you should make. So educational content that says, like, this is the claim we're making. Here's why that's important. Or this is the claim we're making. And here's what's at stake with that type of claim. You're kind of giving them further context to understand that claim, you know, before they even get to make a judgment about it. Gotcha. So the, those are the three categories, the three areas to do that. But you also talk about how, as brands, we may be already making claims in our content without even recognizing it. So how can we go about understanding the claims that we're already making? Yeah, you are almost certainly making claims, um, but it's probably not something you've, you've really made in an in inventory of or thought about with a lot of intention. So the thing that I always recommend starting with is kind of an audit of yourself, and that can be whatever depth is appropriate for your resources and, and, you know, your intentions, but going through your website, your social channels, the emails you send out, your printed materials, you know, signage in store, packaging, wherever you're communicating with your audience and just looking for places where you are making a claim. And claim might sound like kind of a fuzzy word, but you can think of it as a promise, a guarantee, or setting an expectation. So if you're giving out a number and saying, you know, results in 30 days or less, like, that's a claim. You're claiming that it will work in 30 days or less, right? If you're saying that you are the most reliable provider in your area, well, that's a claim. You know, that you're they're more reliable in comparison to some of the others. So it's kind of once you start looking for them, you'll see them popping up everywhere. Uh, they're they're more plentiful than we realize. But really just kind of taking a look and saying, hey, what is it that I'm telling my audience? What expectations am I setting? What promises am I making? And Number one, are those the ones I want to be making? Because sometimes we get carried away, right, and happy, and we're just, we may not be sort of in line with our core brand or, you know, our, our priorities for business at that time. Um, and then sometimes the flip side is like something that we do really well, we're not really showcasing enough. We're not making that claim when we probably should be. Uh, and that would go a long way toward, you know, helping our audience understand what we can really bring to them. So auditing all the things that you are saying and then auditing 
what are you not saying where you want to be saying it? Yeah, absolutely. So both sides of that. And oftentimes there's kind of a little bit of each, you know, when you're taking a look, you find lots of claims and you're like, that's great. This is the kind of stuff we want our audience to know and believe about us. We could probably pump this area up a little bit more. Maybe we're focusing more on this particular claim than we really want to be, or maybe it's not as big of an objection anymore as it used to be. Because this stuff can definitely change over time too. We're always updating our marketing, our messaging, our copy. So there's there's room for growth. Well, and then as we look at these claims that we're saying, you write about this, we may discover that some of the claims that we're making aren't actually as true as we thought. And a lot of times, like some of the claims aren't even really measurable. So there's the distinction between objective claims and subjective claims. So can you explain those? Yeah, so uh, an objective claim is one where someone else doing the analysis would come up with the same result because there's probably like a shared measure of something. So like if you and I were going to say, all right, well, what's faster, one minute or two minutes? Like one minute is faster because time exists. And, you know, that's just how time works, right? But if you and I were to, to, you know, sample the same meal and have to write how delicious it is, well, there's not really like a unified deliciousness scale. It's tough to, you know, how you quantify it might be different than how I quantify it. It's also like, I may think it's delicious and you may think it's gross, you know? So there's, there's, it's a more subjective process. There's not a unified way to measure it or like a clear, clear cut truth or answer to that. So it doesn't mean you can't claim, a, you can't back up a subjective claim. You can still right. try to provide proof, but it's just, you'll have to probably think a little bit harder about the best way to do that because there isn't one obvious way to measure it. Yeah. And then I guess sometimes like if it's, if it's more of a subjective claim, then it helps to rely on other parties to be able to say, and you can say, you know what? Um, we serve fried chicken. We think it's great. We're not going to say it's the best, but these people over here say it's the best. Right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. A lot of subjective claims, um, you do rely pretty heavily on corroboration in those cases to, to say exactly like you said, you know, Maybe maybe you don't trust our singular voice, but you can trust our, you know, 100 five star uh, reviews or you can trust our testimonials. You can trust this video of our customers talking about how wonderful it is. Or this award that we won. The Tastiest Chicken Award. I didn't know there was one, but congratulations. There is now. Hooray. (laughs) All right. So we talked about the three ways to provide that evidence to back up our claims. But then to be able to do that, you say that there's five types of claims. So can you walk through those claims? Yeah. So when you're, uh, sometimes it's helpful when you're looking for the claims to kind of be able to have buckets to put them in or kind of clues for what you're looking for. So that's what those claim types represent. Um, The first one being convenient. So convenience claims are things like you're claiming about how easy it is uh, to work with you, you know, how fast your product is, how affordable it is, basically really just selling the simplicity of it. Uh, that, you know, you're making claims about how convenient your product, service, or the experience of working with you is. Um, and we see a lot of those claims, particularly in the B2C space. So if you're direct to consumer, and particularly if you're selling like physical goods, we often hear a lot about how easy it is to use, how easy it is to set up, how fast the, you know, the delivery is, things like that. Um, we tend to see a lot of those convenience claims, but there are other, other types of claims too. So we see a lot of comparability claims, which is you comparing yourself to someone or something else could be a specific competitor saying like, hey, you know, our vacuum 
sucks up 15% more dust particles than the other leading brand, right? Or you could just say in general, you know, it's better than these other products as a whole, right? Than the industry or than other vacuums, for example. That's a a comparability claim. You have also connection and commitment claims, which are less, oftentimes less about your products and more about your operations. So connection is often talking about the connection you have either with your employees, with the local community, or especially with your customers. That's the relationship stuff that we were talking about earlier, right? Where uh, Olive Garden, when you're here, you're family, right? Like they're making a claim about what it's like to be, how you're going to be treated and how that interaction is going to go. Like family on a good day, not like the dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not like like Thanksgiving table uh, debate, not that part of the family, right? (laughs) Uh, but the, the commitment claims are sort of like the one directional connection thing. So where connection is really about the claims about relationships and interactions, commitment is more about your values, right? So that's like, I'm com- we're committed to sustainability or we're committed to gender pay equality or it's often very like values based, right? And, and that drives a lot of purchasing behavior. So those kind of claims are important as well. Uh, and then the last one, I believe, is uh, is competence claims. And these are kind of across the board, right? This is like, we're good at what we do. We deliver results. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. We've got experience. Um, anything that's just about how good you are at what you do without stepping into that comparison comparability zone. It's really just about you yourself. So thinking through some of these, looking at commitment. So a lot of times, and we're recording this, there's Veterans Day is this week. And you're going to see the majority of brands on Veterans Day are going to post a social post that thanks all the veterans and say how they're committed to the veterans. And then later on, there will be another holiday where they'll post their commitment to whatever that holiday is. And sometimes there's even full months. So you look at look at Pride Month. During Pride Month, exactly. had I don't, I don't know the percentage, but it seemed like 80% of brands changed their logo to a pride flag and said, look, we're, we are committed to this. But when you pull back the curtain, when you start to look at the details, a number of these brands, well, there's not the evidence to back up these claims. Yeah. Well, this is that part we were saying. Sometimes you discover they're not as true as you think, right? It may look really great to you know, put a rainbow colorway of your logo as your avatar for the month. But if customers are looking and saying, well, you know, there's some discriminatory hiring practices or perhaps they're donating to causes that are in opposition to that particular value. Um, you know, that they don't, they claim to be really dedicated to diversity, but, you know, their entire leadership and their entire board is is all, you know, white, for example. So you start to see if the, if the actions aren't backing it up, that's definitely going to be a problem. You want, probably want to stop making that claim or find a way to make that claim actually true before you start talking about it. I think Another great book about this, about making sure that like what you're saying is actually what you're doing. So getting into the more like don't make a claim that's not true is Think, right. Do, Say by Ron Tite. Um, mm. Really good book about um, specifically that, like don't say it if it's not true. Like you have to start with your thoughts, then move into what you say and make sure, uh, then move into what you do and then you have permission to say it. Yeah, there you go. Like it's that, uh, that hierarchical structure of here are the steps to take. And then once you say it, you don't even have to worry about any of the evidence or worry about backing up because you've already backed it up before saying it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, the two philosophies work really well together, which is like you shouldn't be making a claim if you're not actually, you know, able to fulfill that claim. 
Um, but many people are. And so it's important that if you are making that claim, you're also providing some of the evidence. So, you know, if you are one of the brands who is truly committed to sustainability, for example, then like you need to talk about and show what that means beyond just we're committed to sustainability. Like what are the sustainable practices you're adopting? What are the policy changes you've made? What are the, you know, sacrifices, donations, changes in process that, you know, show that you are actually committed to sustainability? And when it comes to these different types of claims, are there certain uh, categories of the evidence that you provide that make more sense with some of these claims? So my guess is that for a lot of listeners, like a certain type of evidence will be easier or more difficult to create just based on the nature of your organization or the types of services that you provide. Um, But truly, each of them can work for any claim type. So in many cases, you want to be sprinkling corroboration throughout all the things that you're saying, because, again, it's always good to have a choir of voices saying something than just you. Um, Whenever it's possible, you want to be showing it because then it doesn't matter how many voices you have. They're going to be able to see it themselves. And generally speaking, we know more about what we're marketing than our audience. Does. So that educational content can go a long way toward helping them kind of come, you know, come to uh, an understanding of, of what the claims that we're making actually mean. So there, I wouldn't say that there's like one favorite or, you know, like a, a go to for each one. But I do think that it's worth considering at least each of the three types of, of content evidence for any claim that you come across to make sure you're choosing the right one and not just like your preference. Well, and, you know, good news, just being able to simplify it by having this framework. Here are the five types of claims. Here are the three ways to do that. It helps you to understand where to focus on each type of claim. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's funny you say framework because obviously that was the, that was the approach with the first book. And this is in some ways like a, a follow up to that. Right. So I guess I've, uh, I've, I've given myself a, a genre now. I'm the framework person. <laughs> I mean, when I hear the name Melanie Diesel, I automatically think of framework. And then, you know, um, talking about uh, Phil, he had to distinguish himself from all of the other Phil Jones of the world by, you know, calling himself Phil M. Jones. And so I'm curious if you would give consideration to distinguishing yourself from all the other Melanie Diesels of the world by adding the, by adding an F in your name, Melanie F. Diesel framework um, is the name. I, you know, it's so funny. I've joked my whole life. I don't love, I don't, uh, I don't feel particularly attached to my middle name. I don't typically use it, but maybe if my middle name were framework, I might be, uh, I might be rolling, rolling it out. So we'll, we'll see. I can't imagine the looks at the courthouse trying to change that. <laughs> well, either way, as far as your personal brand goes, I think that framework fits you. I love it. I'll take it. Well, so you know me, simplicity and convenience, that's my love language. So I love reading about the area on convenience in the book. And I'm curious, when you talk about the fact that you're telling your audience that the experience of working with you will be frictionless, it'll be painless and pleasant, what are the best ways to prove that convenience claim to your customers? Convenience is a is a really big one. I think data can work really well here. So in many cases, when when we're talking about convenience claims, they are objective. The ones we we mentioned are easily measured and easily proved out. So if you're talking about how fast you're going to deliver something, like show the number. What's your average time for delivery? What's the latest it might be? 
Um, what's the range, the most typical delivery range? Um, you know, sh- backing that up with numbers, like anyone can say we deliver fast, but how fast? What's fast to you might not be what's fast to me when I really need something, right? So providing the data and, and getting specific with numbers is a really good option when you're talking about convenience, because again, it's easy to say fast, easy, simple. Those are more subjective, but when you can make it objective and bring the numbers in, it becomes a lot more believable. So definitely look to bring in the numbers into whichever type of proof you create. But I do think that corroboration is one that works pretty well for this too. Uh, when we're talking about something being simple, easy, fast, affordable, hearing from other people that it actually was that experience, you know, again, easy can be kind of difficult to, you know, to, to quantify. So having other people say, yeah, I've, I've tried other things and this was truly the easiest, you know, onboarding experience or, um, you know, I actually had fun filling out my onboarding paperwork, which I never do, you know, so being able to bring in other perspectives, I think will really kind of add to that effect for sure. And I, I tried thinking through the different claims, you know, beyond convenience. And I'm not sure if this approach works for the other four, but one of the things that I like to teach leaders around their customer experience is becoming your own customer, going through your customer experience as a customer. And to me, I think that's one of the things that you would need to do in your audit of your convenience claims beyond just everything that you're saying and beyond any you know corroboration or customer reviews or ratings, if you're saying that your experience is convenient, have you gone through that experience and did you feel like it was convenient? Yeah. And I think you're a hundred percent right. That's also true for the others, right? Like thinking about, did I actually feel a connection? Did I actually feel like a person and a relationship and not just a number, for example, or, you know, did they actually deliver on the results? You know, maybe this reminds me of, uh, remember years back, Domino's was like, hey, we're sorry, our pizza doesn't taste very good. Like they kind of admitted that their claim about the pizza being good, like they're like, we're sorry, it doesn't actually taste that good, but we're changing, right? So that would be sort of in the competence category of like, we said it was good, but it, it wasn't that good. So we're going we're gonna to switch it up. Um, but you're exactly right. And I think to that end uh, or to that point, your reviews and feedback are a really good place to find out where you may not be living up to those expectations. Oftentimes when you see a negative review or, you know, a low rating or something like that, it is often the result of a mismatch expectation. They expected one thing and they received another. Now, that doesn't mean that you made an incorrect claim. They may have just had the wrong expectation, right? Um, I expected that it would be sunny the day I went to the zoo. So I'm leaving a bad review because I got soaking wet, right? That's not your fault. You didn't claim it would be sunny. But in many cases, you know, a negative review is an indication that there was an expectation of some kind that wasn't that. And sometimes you can connect that to a claim that needs more backing up. Yeah. And then that's where you can decide, oh, okay, so what do we need to do to back up this sort of claim or to help reset those expectations? What's going to work best here? Corroboration, demonstration, or education? Oh, okay. You know what? Um, somebody had a bad experience at the zoo, but it was because of the weather. Well, let's see what we can do to educate them about what the weather's going to be like, you know, when they're there. Yeah, right. So maybe we send out emails with weather reports when people buy their tickets in advance so they know to bring an umbrella. Or maybe we we let them know, here's the points throughout the zoo where you can pick up an umbrella or one of those horrific plastic bag uh, ponchos that you'll definitely regret, but we'll keep you dry. Uh, you know, you could find other ways to kind of educate them to, to help them make sense of that claim. Yeah, it's going to be extra hot today. Here's where all of our water fountains are located. Oh, and you know what? Yes. Bring your refillable water bottle. 
or you can buy one in the gift shop. There you go. You need yourself a water bottle with a sloth on it. <laughs> Love it. Now I'm going to get one. Right, so I want to shift directions slightly because we've been talking about using all of this, using this framework as it relates to marketing and talking to consumers. What about when you're trying to win over somebody else? What, what if you're a professional, you're trying to win over your leadership when you're pitching a new idea? Or what if you're trying to get somebody else just to simply buy into whatever it is you're saying in, in your professional career? Does this still work? Yeah, 100%. And I may be biased, you know, and I, I probably have my mom to thank for, for partially for my career because when I was a kid, if we wanted to convince our mom of something we weren't allowed to, you know, to, to have a sleepover or to stay out late or whatever, whatever it is, she made us write an essay explaining, you know, why this was a good idea and why we had to do that, right? So it was her way of helping us articulate and sometimes realize that we were asking for something unreasonable or, or whatever else. So whether you're trying to convince partner that you should get another dog or, you know, you're trying to convince your boss that you need to invest in this upcoming conference for your team's continuing education. Um, I mean, really anything, anytime you want to make a claim that something is important, you want to make a claim that it's something you should do, bringing more evidence to the table is not going to hurt. Now, the only thing I will caution here is that, you know, there are some interactions in life that require, you know, a little bit more uh, of a of a loving touch, you know, giving some grace and maybe coming in with a stack of uh, studies and, and you know, a bunch of evidence when you're having the decision of whether to like have another child or something might come across a little cold. So, you know, just keep keep that in mind that, you know, the, the way you lean into your evidence to depend on the context, of course. Well, yes, that means like doing all the upfront work to make sure you're intentional about the types of claims you want to make. Exactly. All right. Well, last question for you, Melanie. If you were to create a five-song soundtrack for Prove It, what songs would you include? So uh, I'm going to go with, this one was actually, it was your suggestion, Trust in Me from the Jungle Book. I think it is a perfect, right? We've got trust in the title. We're trying to help folks uh, feel like they can trust in us. Um, same vein, we're going to go with Hail on Me by Bruno Mars. Um, you know, you can count on me. That's kind of the vibe we want to give to our audience, you know. Yeah, yeah, you're humming it. You know the one. Yeah. Um, I also want to do it unwritten, Natasha Bedingfield, because I feel like there could be a feeling that you don't have this proof or that this is too much, but really it's there and it's just for you to create and share with your audience, right? The, the proof is there. You just need to create it. Unconventionally, I'm going to go with Layla by Eric Clapton. My daughter's name is Layla, spelled oh, differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, this has been the first book that I've written while she's been sort of a, you know, a full person as opposed to a baby. And it's been a big part of my experience doing that as a parent and ha being able to share that experience with her has been really special. Um, and the, the spinoff there is uh, the theme song to Spidey and his amazing friends, which is done by Patrick Stump from Fallout Boy. So this is like a fun cross-generational connection point for us. Um, I have probably heard that song more times while I was writing this book and promoting this book than anything else. Um, so uh, Spidey and his amazing friends theme song is what's truly playing in the background. <laughs> Love that. So my boys are now 12 and 10. They're a little bit beyond the age of Spidey and his amazing friends now. But now I want to go watch it. Now I'm going to go listen to that theme song. 
You got it. It's a good, it's a good theme song. And it's, it's been really special for me because I was, uh, I was definitely like a fallout boy, uh, emo kid in the, in that appropriate, you know, early 2000s time. So it's been, it's been a joy to have, uh, Patrick Stump back in my life. Love that. All right. So Millie, I've learned a lot from you, even just from our talk today, but where can people go to learn more? Yeah. So my main website, the hub for, for most things, Melanie, is storyfuel.co. So story, F-U-E-L.co. Uh, that's my main website. So you'll find links there to the books, links to how to work with me, links to all my social platforms if you want to find me. And uh, you mentioned before differentiating, there is only one other Melanie Diesel in the world. And let's just say I've won the SEO game. So if you search for me, uh, wherever you're looking, you'll probably find me. Excellent. Well, good job on having the right name to make you easily findable. That's right. <laughs> Melanie, it was great seeing you. Great talking with you again. I'm so grateful for you being here. And thanks for letting me share my story. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Melanie Diesel. So go and learn more from her at storyfuel.co. And go ahead and pick up your copy of Prove It. It's going to help you learn how to create and deliver the right content to help you more simply gain your customer's trust. And if you like Melanie's lessons in this episode, then go and check out episode 13 of the Simple Brand Podcast, where we discuss her book, The Content Fuel Framework. Now, this is normally the part in the episode where I tell you about the next episode's guest. But we're going to do something a little different with the show right now. We're actually going to pause and take a break during the month of December. Now, we'll be releasing some past episodes from The Vault, so if you haven't heard those yet, you'll definitely want to check those out. Or you can be like me and take a pause to just enjoy the holiday season. Then we'll be back at the beginning of the year with all new guests and all new episodes. Until then, keep it simple. Simple.